0: Stand tall, suffer, and keep the faith. Think about what Oswald Chambers wrote. All throughout history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependency on him made possible the unique display of power and grace. He chose somebodies only when they renounced their dependency on their natural abilities and resources. If this is true, then Timothy was the right man for the job. He was not given a powerful body. He was frail. He was not bold, but reticent. And he was not a natural leader. If the job was to get done, he'd have to rely upon God. Everything would have to be the result of Timothy's profound dependency on God's power and grace. Timothy was surely heartened by Paul's introductory remarks, in which the apostle reminded him that he was In the apostles constant prayer and of his longing affection for his young for his young disciple and of his confidence in the sincerity of Timothy's faith and Timothy undoubtedly took further heart from Paul's reminder of the giftedness for ministry that he was to fan the flame and of the Holy Spirit's gift of power and love and self-control for ministry. These bracing realities prime Timothy for the solemn charges to stand tall, suffer, and keep the faith. A heady extortions that range through verses 8 through 14. The dual call to stand tall or to stand and suffer is immediately introduced in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Stronger men than Timothy had wilted when faced with shame and suffering. The iron-wielded, sword-wielding Apostle Peter had loudly declared, Lord, I am ready to, to go with you both to prison and to death. But he, was, he, was soon, he soon was ashamed to admit that he knew Jesus. And he denied him outright before the soldiers And before a servant girl, as Jesus watched. In those storied and thankful fleeting moments, Peter fled the shame and the suffering of Christ. The temptation for Timothy to succumb to shame was not a figment of Paul's imagination. The cross of Christianity was a scandal. It may seem incredible that people would view Jesus as as shameful, but both Jews and Gentiles viewed crucifixion as a penalty reserved only for the worst of criminals. And as the ultimate emblem of disgrace and dishonor, Plight, Peg, and Company would never mention the equivalent of the English word cross. The loathsome word was too obscene. And in the sophisticated Greek environment, the preaching of the cross was held to be absurd. The idea of a Jewish peasant becoming a, a substitutionary atonement for people's sin was laughable. The crudeness was mocked by educated urban Greeks. There were also some in the Ephesian church who viewed Paul's suffering and imprisonment as public proof that the Holy Spirit was not with Paul. Paul's enemies within the church believed that the resurrection, a spiritual resurrection, had, taken, had already taken place and that those who had experienced it had been so filled with the Spirit that their difficulties evaporated Their theology was similar to today's health and wealth preachers. To them, Paul's suffering and imprisonment in Rome were due to to his shameful, unspiritual nature and the disproval of the Holy Spirit. But Paul urged Timothy not to succumb to such ungrounded shame, whether over the scandal of the cross or the shame of Christ's servants. Rather he was to stand tall, as Paul himself did in that foul dungeon. Paul's unbowed, towering posture is detected here in in his subtle use of words as he described himself as his prisoner, that is, the Lord's prisoner. He is in Caesar's dungeon, but Nero is not his captor. Christ is. And the apostle is proud, not shamed. Thus, Timothy also ought ought to stand tall. Be the man that you are meant to be, Timothy. The parallel call to suffer is is explicit. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Rather than being ashamed of Paul's suffering, Timothy must stand tall and freely. Choose to suffer with the great apostle. Oswald Chambers was right when he wrote, to choose to suffer means there is something wrong. To choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will, as Paul did, whether it means suffering or not. This said, suffering, rather than being removed by the gospel, is actually part of the gospel, Jesus made it clear from the beginning when he forewarned his followers in the upper room. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. In the same way, Jesus crowned the Beatitudes with suffering, implying that once you've mastered the seven good qualities of poverty, the seven good qualities of poverty of spirit, mourning, meekness, spiritual hunger, mercy, purity of heart, and peacemaking, you will be rewarded with suffering. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5. Suffering is part of God's gospel gospel blessing. When Jesus called Paul on the road to Damascus, he immediately sent Ananias to him, saying, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And as the years passed, Paul would describe his ministry like this We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of the death. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filled up with what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Likewise, he informed the Philippians about their privilege. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Later in 2 Timothy, he will say again to his young protege, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Paul's words were sealed with his own blood. This first century theology needs to be central in our 21st theology. Persecution is inevitable for serious Christians, it is a privilege. It has been granted to you. Suffer for his sake. It is a blessing. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Matthew 5. Suffering is never pleasurable. But it can be eased by the company of those undergoing the same thing. Timothy was called to join Paul in suffering for the gospel. Because what is so difficult alone is easier to endure. And even rejoice over in the company of other believers. In the same way. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Acts 5. Suffering is not something any person or group chooses to endure or chooses or endures in its own power. And that is why Paul calls Timothy to do it by the power of God, which Timothy has been given, as verse 7 said. The reason that Timothy... And Christians of any age can rely on God's powers because it is inseparable from God's grace. Paul here sets forth the gospel in all its fullness by repeatedly holding high the gracious glories of the gospel in verses 9 and 10. William Barclay correctly declares of this section, there are few passages in the New Testament which have in them and behind them such a sense of sheer grandeur of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sovereign grace, the power or the ability to suffer in a godly way, is rooted in God's sovereign grace, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to be holy, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. The gospel originated in God, and the gospel is totally the good news of God's grace. It is not only the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the gospel of God, as Paul calls it in Romans 1. It is not based on anything we have done. It is all of grace, undeserving kindness from above. As Paul puts it in Titus 3 verse 5, he saved us not because of He he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And most famously, he says in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If our salvation depended on anything in us, our position, Our position, based on any realistic estimate of ourselves, would be hopeless. All glory goes to God for his sovereign, omnipotent, sustaining grace. At the last mention of the gospel, Paul rejoices in his privilege. His soul dances at the thought of his call. Of the gospel, says, says the apostle, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. He was a crux, one who sounds forth the the evangel, the greatest news ever told. He was apostolos, one sent with a a specific commission from God. And he was a teacher, a didascolos. As he outlined the great doctrine of faith, the apostolic deposit, and as he marvels at his privilege, he reflects on his suffering, which is why I suffer as I do. I am suffering because the gospel is so utterly glorious. I am suffering because it is so powerful. I am suffering because it is the only hope of the lost. As he stands tall, he further excludes, sorry, as he stands tall, he further exalts, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until the day that has been entrusted to me. Think of it, though he is entombed below the ground in a dark, dripping cell, awaiting execution, though he seems to have been forgotten, be a forgotten cast off to the world, and certainly to his enemies, he vows, I am not ashamed. Why? For I know whom I have believed. Certainly, Paul knew what he believed as well as any Christian who, ever, who has ever lived. He had authored at least 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament, but he stresses whom he has believed and it, who he has believed in and continues to believe in in perfect tense. There is no wavering, no doubt, only profound confidence of perpetual faith and a constant relationship with God. Thus, he stands imperially tall and unashamed. Why else is he not ashamed? I'm convinced that he is able to guard until the day what has been entrusted to me. Paul lived with the certainty that God would guard his life. Commitment to the gospel until until the great day of Christ's return and final judgment. Paul was absolutely certain that his gospel deposit would be protected right up up to and the judgment where God would assess everything to his glory. So Paul towered unashamed. God would vindicate him. We should always remember that Paul was not theorizing or preaching in the dark. But with the reality before his eyes, this was real life. He stood tall because because he intimately knew in whom he believed. And he remained unashamed, because he knew God would guard his life's investment until the judgment. What Paul was doing here by, by letter was extending the apostolic hand out of his Roman prison, across the land and the seas, and was beckoning Timothy to join him in standing unashamed while suffering for Christ. His hand still reaches out, through the centuries to Christ's followers. The glorious gospel never demanded less. As a young preacher from Zimb- Zimbabwe so memorably expressed it I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit's power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of His. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. It is a great day when by faith your heart says yes to whatever the gospel brings, and you join hands with the apostle. Are you ready to do so today? Paul concludes, this section with his, Paul concludes this section with his famous charge to Timothy to keep the faith by living out two parallel commands. First, follow the pattern of the sound words that you, you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Second, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Follow it by urging Timothy to follow his instruction. As the pattern for sound teaching, Paul sets this theological parameters for the preaching of the gospel. But Paul was especially concerned about how it was done, about Timothy's attitude that it be in, faith, in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. The attitude with, Timi- with which Timothy maintained his orthodoxy Was almost as important as the orthodoxy itself. How different the church history would be, would have been, if the church had succeeded, in succeeding generations had taken this to heart. How different the church would be if this was true today. Guard it. The second imperative. To guard the good deposit goes a step farther. It is the same note that was sounded at the end of 1 Timothy. O Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, or by or by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Timothy must be always Timothy must always be loving, but at the same time he must be perpetually vigilant like a soldier. Timothy must be tough. But this is is not the the task of Timothy alone. He must do it with the help of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And here the appeal comes full circle. It began in verses 6 and 7 with the appeal to Timothy to live out his ministry through the power of the Holy Spirit. Then followed four commands. Do not be ashamed. Share in the suffering. Follow the pattern and guard the good deposit now again he returns by the he returns to the holy spirit enabling holy spirit's enabling power by the holy spirit who dwells within us there is no doubt that Timothy could do this he was a prime candidate because in Oswald's chambers words again all through history god has chosen and used nobody's because their unusual dependency on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace he chose and used somebody's only when they renounced dependency on their natural abilities and resources god is looking for a few good nobodies people who know they cannot succeed in serving him in their own strength these are the people who are able to stand tall and who will unashamedly testify about Jesus. Like Paul, they are unashamed of the gospel because in their weakness, they rely on the Holy Spirit. These are the people who join in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. They are humble because they see the gospel grace for what it is. They see the gospel grace for what it is of God, and not of ourselves. They are so overwhelmed by the gospel that they both suffer and stand tall. These are the people who keep the pattern of sound teaching and guard the gospel. Their weakness is the occasion for God's power. Their reticence for his loving aggression. Their need for the help of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit is linked expressly to, this, to suffering, struggling, and what he provides for the believer is what is needed to keep one persevering in the midst of trials that come because of faith. Not removal to some higher plane. This view of the Spirit was quite different from, what, from that of the enthusiast that Timothy and Paul faced. It is also an understanding it is also an understanding quite different from that held by those in our church who equate spiritual, spiritual Christianity with the immediate resolution of life's difficulty. Paul's view is the correct one. The other is escapist, a fantasy covered over with a thin coat of spiritual paint.